0: I said in minor prophets that um, that day was connect the dots day, and that's all we did. I I just realized at the last minute, well, we haven't really left Amos, and the whole point of the class is actually to cover Hosea. Uh, whoops! Oh well. And my half my brain was still lecturing from Hosea while I was in Amos. So the but this class has has a similar dilemma, which is that. We are today is another, no, not another. For some of you, it is another class of connect the dots, but for some of you, it is just connect the dots, and maybe we'll just be connecting dots for the whole week, uh, because I want to show you the impact and the importance of the Davidic covenant, <clears throat> and one way to do that is just to show you how it really controls and draws or maybe better put, how many passages draw upon the concepts of the Davidic Covenant. And hopefully through the discussion, you start to see, um, and there are some dangers to this, but there is a balance here. Um, So often, we read the Bible with just me and my salvation kind of mentality. It's just about me, and I've already railed against that, but we also just read it about it's just about me getting saved. It's just about my sins getting forgiven. And that's all that God's about in the Bible. Uh, Is that a big deal? Yes, it's a big deal in the Bible. Don't get me wrong. I mean, amen. There are so many things in the scripture that deal with sin and forgiveness and regeneration and justification and all these kinds of glorious ideas and sanctification, how to be a more godly person. Those are all true in the scripture, but if that's it, then you got a problem. You got a problem because God is God is way bigger than you and your salvation. Uh, he, he has purposes to honor Himself far more than just you thanking Him for salvation. That's going to be included, and that's I would argue that's like the linchpin. That's the engine of the car, so to speak. But there's more to a car than just its engine, right? You can have a great, awesome engine with no wheels, and it's not going to help you too much. Uh, there there is something much more. And the Davidic covenant explodes that onto the scene. And hopefully through what we sh- talk about, you'll start to see, wow, I mean, Jesus is a king and he's my king. And yes, he did save me, but he, when we mean that he's the Messiah, when we mean that he's the king of kings, it's something far grander, right? He deserves far more. Uh, what he paid for was much more beyond what you might originally anticipate. Uh, In essence, he died to be the world's king and to claim the entire universe for himself. That's much bigger than just, well, he died to save me from my sins. It's true. It's both and. And, you know, the soteriological elements of the cross are absolutely there. And they're central, I would argue. But... Even though they're central, that doesn't mean that they're the only thing. And so we have to be careful here. Well, <clears throat> and so many passages that I think you take for granted are some that you don't probably even think about too much. They all are drawn upon um, the Davidic covenant. So just by showing you what's going on, hopefully, uh, so it's more connect the dots. And so that means if you We're minor prophets. This is like connect the dots part two. And can I tell a funny story about Roger? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Good. Thank you. I remember one of the first times we played connect the dots in Ezekiel class. Remember that? It was with the shepherd, I think, or something like that, and so or or something like that. And I had the in that room. It was we were in rack at first because. The first, first, we were in EHC. Remember? Or, well, this is EHC. We were in that small room, and no one fit. So we just had lectures outside. And, and then eventually, registrar said, "You can't do that." So I said, "Well, can we do it by Skype?" And then they didn't like that idea, even though Beely was like going to really fight for me to get it by Skype. He's like, "That's great. You can just be in your office and not do anything." It's like, "Yeah, I like that." Uh, but rack, it was glorious in the sense that. The whole room was one humongous whiteboard, so I just drew this entire diagram of all these different texts on the board, just kind of like what I do now, but just imagine the entire board covered in passages and connections and arrows and lines and triangles and boxes. (coughs) And I said, okay, so everyone got that? And Roger's like what did you just i mean the, the expression was priceless i wish i had a camera i mean but now now it's old hat for him he's like oh yeah so you can get this too but today is connect the dots and um that's that's what we're going to try to do and, and maybe one of most of you probably won't look like roger but but it'll, it'll still be <laughs> it'll still be good so let's pray Lord, thank you for laughter. Thank you for joy. And thank you for the richness of your word uh, where things, things connect. And they, and this isn't just random bits of information, random bits of data just floating around and people say things and there is no correlation. Lord, thank you for one cohesive message that the prophets carried and they carry with great sacrifice for our benefit as the book of First Peter tells us for so great a salvation, a salvation that doesn't just save us from sins, oh Lord, thank you for that, but a salvation that impacts the universe and gives peace and establishes your sovereignty ultimately in the end, that you are the ultimate king and every nation and every people and every tongue and every part of creation will bow in demonstration of your absolute clear and supreme authority. Give us a heart to love these things, and give us a heart to love the hero who makes all of these things possible, your Son, the Lord Jesus. And help us to give him the honor that is truly due to him, an honor that doesn't just thank him for saving our souls, but thanks him for delivering and ruling over and conquering evil and the world, the entire universe, for the glory of your name. And as we study the Davidic covenant, where all of these truths are encapsulated in that promise Um, help us to see how they all work together and not just to make connections but to give glory and honor to your name thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here encourage their hearts now Uh, draw them into worship through the theology the biblical theology that is talked about now give us clarity protect us from evil and error Lord and grant us mercy and illumination at this time in your name we pray, amen. Okay, so the way... so Okay, well, one, we just need to review. Because it's been a long time since... I f- it feels like forever, I don't know. Did you guys have a good outreach week? I didn't ask minor prophets that. I just assumed they did, because they're all tired. <coughs> so that must have been it was good. But um, yeah, it was a good outreach week. I, I just studied and wrote all day long. Yeah, it's funny. I walk in, I, the secretary's like, how are you doing? I'm like, bye. And I just walk into my office, and then all you hear is, <laughs> <laughs> and that's it, for about, you know, nine, ten hours, and then I walk out, and bye, you know, and there's nobody there. So it's like, oh, well, whoops, and then I leave. Uh, that was my life last week, but it was good. Um, very good. So, and I'm thankful for it. Davidic covenant. It is if if we could describe it perhaps in two ways, two Lord of the Rings metaphors. <clears throat> you know, one one doesn't really fit, and the other one doesn't exactly fit either. But the the ring as the central gravitating force. You know, uh, the ring. It's the key to destroying the big bad guy. It's the key to saving the girl in the end. It's the key to delivering the lands of Middle-earth from the big bad guy. Do you understand this? It's it's the ring is everything. You you mess up on the ring, everything collapses. Everyone's fate and destiny is tied and they and uh, Elrond and others have use that very language, is tied to the fate of the ring. Does that make sense to everybody? And the Davidic covenant is this kind of hub. It is this kind of gravitating focal point of redemptive history. Everything starts to get rolled into the Davidic covenant. And you see this in 2 Samuel. And you probably, all of you, or at least most of you, should keep your Bible open to 2 Samuel 7, this entire class, so you can read it for yourself and make the connections. But internal to the Davidic covenant itself, I mean, you have the world linked to Israel, linked to David, And the relationship between the world and Israel is encapsulated by Genesis 3.15 and its expansion in the Abrahamic covenant, as well as Genesis 3.15 and its temporary kind of, we might say, reprieve in the Noahic covenant, and that is even linked, I would argue, (coughs) in, in some sense to the Abrahamic covenant at least chronologically and at least circumstantially in the sense that the only reason the Abrahamic covenant can go forward is the fact that the Noahic covenant exists and that the world is not a terrible place to live in and there is stability and there is continuity and things of this nature. And there is some degree of rest. Everyone got that. That's the nature of the Noahic covenant. Abrahamic covenant is kind of the vehicle by which blessing can come to the world that is cursed. And notice in Genesis 3.15, it's not just, it's not that man is cursed or woman is cursed in the sense that they're unredeemable. They are punished, but the whole world falls in Genesis 3, not just man. Does that make sense to everybody? It's not just that sin affects people. Sin affects what? Everything think Horner gave a message on Monday, yes, on Romans 1. And the emphasis is, is the fall is comprehensive. It is powerful. But the Abrahamic covenant is meant, is aiming to undo the fall. You know, it's not just a bunch of promises that God gives Abraham for no reason. It's meant to undo the fall. It's meant to be a step in the right direction. Well, in the meantime, the Abrahamic covenant is kind of for lack of a better term mediated by the Mosaic covenant or and there is some specific it has more particulars on along those lines. In the midst of that too, the Mosaic covenant kind of produces the time of the conquest by necessity and the judges. And we learn, we start to learn that all of this is rolled in to the Davidic covenant, to David. David is the greater Abraham. We talked about that because he has a great name, just like Abraham had a great name. Remember that? And David, he will have a seed. Remember that? That ties back to Genesis 3.15. David, God promises David, rest from his enemies, remember that? That's Noahic covenant, everyone remember this? God promises that he will plant David in the land, that's the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant as tied to the Abrahamic covenant, and that because they are planted in the land, they will never experience what the judges had, what they experienced in the time of the judges, that's the fulfillment of the judges period. Everything in world history, (coughs) as it pertains to God's plan of redemption from the fall till now, Till this point is encapsulated in the promises of the Davidic covenant. Does that make sense to everybody? It's the one ring to rule them all. Now, how is God going to fulfill the Davidic covenant? That's also specified within the Davidic covenant. So we can put it this way. The capital K-I-N-G promises the lowercase k-I-N-G that the capital K-I-N-G will use the lowercase k-I-N-G to save the world, through Israel, through everything that he's already promised. Whoops. The question is, how is he going to do that? And we already listed some ways. One was the seed promise that there will be an ultimate Davidic king. And the ultimate Davidic king, just like all his predecessors, will receive a kingdom have a nation that will have hegemony, have great influence and rule and authority and preeminence amongst all the other kingdoms. But not only that, but this seed will be a king. But the problem is there's suffering involved. And the way that um, this king will be a king is two, twofold. He will build temples, He will build a temple for the capital K-I-N-G. And what? He will be father and son relationship. He will have a father and son relationship. These are the four ways God will build and fulfill the Davidic covenant. There will be a seed. You will have a kingdom. He will be a king, but he will also suffer for sin. If need be. Everyone remember this. This is all review so it should be quite clear. I even mentioned last time that, you know, because we're wondering, how does a king build a temple, and how how does Messiah suffer? And we mentioned it. Isaiah 53, Ezekiel 34 through 48. More on that today, actually. Well, maybe. But the Davidic Covenant plays out in a lot of different ways, and one of the most familiar ways is through the Psalms. Through the Psalms. And I want to talk about the Davidic Covenant and its connection with the Psalms quite a bit. Because we read the Psalms all the time, and sometimes we just like to skip over things. Uh, Why? Because we don't understand how to deal with them, and well, because we don't understand how to deal with them, uh, they become confusing or a stumbling block to us. But really, the Davidic Covenant can provide a solution. If I was going to draw a diagram of how I think at least the psalms work in general, here's here's what I would do. Here's David, and here's the line of redemptive history, and here's you. Here's the cross. David is looking forward to the cross. You are looking back. Yes, does that make sense? This is redemptive history. There is a connection between you and David via the Psalms. However, David is writing those Psalms per the Davidic covenant. And oftentimes, oftentimes, his view of the Davidic covenant is that all kings will fall under these promises, but even that will culminate in the Messiah in Christ. And you must then worship the Lord through the Psalms in following that paradigm. Notice, you don't always just connect directly to David. Does that make sense to everybody? You don't always just say, hey, I'm David, I do these things, and we're all done. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's no, go through here, go through here, go through here. Does that make sense to everybody? And let's just show you some examples. Turn to Psalm 139. 139. Now you know this psalm, right? What's Psalm 139 talk about? Anyone remember? Just yeah, God's omnipresence, God's what? Omnipotence. And uh, what's some famous famous phrases from the psalm? I am what? Fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, or where can I go? To, where can I flee from your presence? You guys remember this psalm, right? But but here comes the problem. Well, it's, I don't know. It's not really a problem if you do this, but it's a problem for a lot of people, right? Uh, someone read verse, you know, like 19-ish. Or maybe it's 20 or 18 or something. 19? Okay, go ahead and read it. Oh, that you would slay the wicked God. Oh, men of blood depart from me. Continue.
1: Those who hate you over, and
0: do I not those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Okay, stop right there. Um, you know, here David is meditating upon God's omnipresence, God's omnipotence, God's omniscience, as we like to theologically divide it, and I think actually divisions are legitimate. And then all of a sudden, he just says, God, yeah, just kill all the bad guys. And you, and a preacher reaches a kind of a weird problem, right? Because now what are you going to say? Well, how are you going to. You know, what, what, what are some examples? I've heard this psalm preached quite a few ways. Here, I'll, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, yeah, like this weekend in Watts, there was like Psalms 3, they went crazy over it. I'll crush the teeth of my enemies.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, we could cover that one too, yeah. I mean, so what do you do? So, like, okay. A, you say, well, contrary to what the New Testament teaches about our enemies, yes, or even God's enemies, that we should love our enemies or something like that, we need to hate them. We just need to take them out. Yeah, that's, one, that's one application. And you're thinking, once you start to say contrary to what Jesus said, you, you might run into some problems here. Okay? But that's, that's a possibility. I've heard that preached. Two, two, I've heard a pastor preach, this is David's sinful thinking. David is sinning here. And I'm like, and that's why he says in the next verse, Search me, know my heart. I'm sinning. I know God, I'm sinning. And you're like, well, I don't know. I mean, that's pretty interesting. Like, Israel's supposed to sing this song, but then they all sin together? You know, David's like this huge stumbling block. Like, oh no. This is not going to work. I've I've heard that this isn't in the text. I don't know exactly how they got that. I think they just made it up. But, I mean, yeah, there's some textual critical issues, but it's not like an omission of verses 19 through 22. Uh, I just heard people skip over it. You know, like, um, you know, this is how they do it. They read verse 18. Uh, you know, I count them, they're more than the sand and the sea, you know, they're they're I you know I try to see their end and they're you know, they're without number and all these kind of things. And, oh, and then search me, oh God. And you're like, where's nineteenth or twenty-one or twenty-two or something? And it's not there. You know. And if you're not paying attention as a layperson, what do you do? You just oh thank the Lord, he's almost done. You know, the the You know, almost done with the passage or something like that. But it's there. And you have to ask, what's David doing? And why is he doing it? Um, What are some other possibilities? Uh, Very convoluted discussions. I remember hearing this passage once preached at a very prominent church, and it was a very convoluted discussion. Uh, Just like, well, you know, David was doing this, and we can do it too, but not really but we should... Okay, and let's move on. It's like, what? What What does that even mean? We can do it, but not really, but we should, but we shouldn't? Uh, okay. Do you see how something like this could cause some problems with people? Or a lot of texts like this? <coughs> so we'll walk through it, right? What is David talking about here? Yes, he's talking about God, but David's view of God is not just His personal friend and buddy, David's view of God is who? The king. And as a king, capital K-I-N-G, the reason that God is omniscient should humble David and should give him security that God protects him. And the fact that he's omnipresent means that David has additional stability. And the fact that he is omnipotent indicates that God is well aware and well capable of ordaining David's life as a king. And what is David saying here as a Davidic king? Your enemies, God, what? I hate them. Why? Why? Because as a Davidic king, What's his job? What's his job as a Davidic king? To crush, other to crush the other nations. Right? That's his job description, isn't it? That's, what he was, that's why he brought such joy and hope to Israel when he what? Conquered Jerusalem. Because for the first time in the nation's history, they had a glimmer of hope. Does that make sense to everybody? This is something particularly for David in light of the covenant made in the Davidic covenant. Does that make sense to everybody? I mean, this is this is where a direct connection between you and David won't work because you're not a Davidic king. And that's not your job description. Does this make sense to everybody? Yeah. David is not you. And, and so you can't sing this song the same way David did. Unless you're singing it about who? Christ, the ultimate Davidic king, right? Who told you, vengeance belongs to me. So you love the enemies. Understanding what? That in the end, I will crush them. Yeah.
1: So, like, I could sing that because I mean, I've killed a million people in my mind. I mean, I shoot at targets and I'm like, all right, you're dead. That's straight in your rag. That's, you know, I, you know, it's, so we should, I mean, I, I probably killed like a million people in my mind. Uh, but it was righteous. I mean, I feel it was.
0: Right. And here, you might say, well, I mean, what, were they exactly God's enemies? Maybe, maybe not, in a sense. But my point is, with this text, David has a specific job in mind, right? You're still, even in Iraq, you're not a Davidic king, you know? Even if you were doing something that wasn't necessarily wrong, it doesn't mean you were in the same position that he was.
1: Yeah, but at the same token, like, it, it still means that he was in a position, so he was able to do that, and I was in my own position, so Romans 13 would say, go ahead and do that. Right. So, in a sense, they are a little bit connected in as far as,
0: there is a correlation, right? Yeah. And so you could relate, but you still couldn't relate the same way David does. Because the reason David's saying this is what? Capital K-I-N-G. Know this. I am your king. I, am, I follow exactly what you want me to do. You know, right? You know, because you're omnipotent, you're omniscient, you're omnipresent. You know who I am. So search me and see that I'm actually the right king because I have the desires that, a, that the capital K-I-N-G does. Remember, anytime David deviates from what God wants him to do and what God commands him to do, he's going to fail. And David's point is, I haven't deviated God. I hate them the way you hate them. I am exactly having the same zeal that you have. And you could take that home, right? You could say, well, David here is expressing loyalty, specifically as a Davidic king, but is there an application that, okay, we have loyalty to the Lord, and we want to match his desires, and we want to match his mentality and his viewpoint about everything? Surely. Surely. But it might look different because he's in a totally different job description. But does that make sense what he's doing? God, you're the king. You know everything. So search me and see that actually these things are good because what? They mean that I'm the right king. I'm obeying you. Think of it this way. Anyone know what the sin of Saul was before he was immediately disqualified? He failed to kill who? Anyone remember? The Amalekites. He didn't what? Hate them the way God did. Does that make sense? He didn't hate them the way God did. So what did he do? Well, they're not that bad. So maybe I can make a little money off of this. I can get some profit off this. I can get an alliance off of this. And God said, don't you understand? My soul abhors them. What are you doing? You're gone. David's point is, I'm not like Saul. Does that make sense? I'm not like Saul. What you hate, I hate. And what you want me to do, therefore, I will do, because your will is my will. That's what David is trying to communicate here a deep, abiding loyalty, as in his position of Davidic kingship. And there are applications here, to be sure, for Christians. You don't just have to skip over it, but you should probably explain it right. You know, it's not right for just a believer who has a vendetta against somebody personally, to go out and take, out, take them out as if that's a righteous act. But for David, he's a Davidic king and God has assigned him real targets with real enemies. And so as a Davidic king, he better do that, otherwise he's what? Sinning. He's rebelling against the capital K-I-N-G just like Saul did. Does that make sense to everybody? You're not David. Yeah? Uh, so, Would you argue that I think it's dangerous. Sometimes the end result's going to look the same, right? When God talks about omnipotence, it's kind of like, well, He is a king, and He is our king. So, yeah, it's going to really have a zero effect. But the problem is, if you don't go through the proper route, the times where it does make a difference are going to get you. Does that make sense? Um, and so this is like a filter and sometimes things just filter through without any problem but other times if you don't put the filter on something will come through that you're just like whoa what this is not I can't do this or I shouldn't do this or why do I feel like I'm not connecting here for some reason does that make sense so yeah there is a paradigm and you start to see that the Psalms shift dramatically um, because they are an expression of both David's Um, viewpoint of the Davidic covenant, but also they are an expression of theology, too, of the nature of the Davidic covenant. Let me give you an example of how this might enhance our reading. Psalm 61. Psalm 61. Um, David, with the Lord to hear his cry uh, that he calls to him and Psalm 61 talks about uh, David's trust and on the the rock most high you know put me there guide me to that place make me rest there because you are my stronghold you are my refuge strong tower before the enemy and David wants to sojourn right and why can he have this kind of confidence Uh, I think it's in verse 5 maybe because is that the first word of verse 5 for okay or what for you. yeah for you for you O god have heard what and you have given possession to what the mercy. yeah the ones that fear your name and then notice verse 7 and we'll come back to verse 6 in a second but just remember that phrase Days upon days will be added to the who? To the king. His years will be what? His years will endure for generation after generation. Now, what's weird about this? David first said what? Hear my cry, right? Listen to my prayer from the ends of the earth. I cry to you. And then all of a sudden he starts to talk about the king in the third person. Do you see that? Do you see the person change there? Now, it's okay. I mean, David could talk about himself in the third person. That's totally fine. But I would argue based on two things that David is envisioning this. God, I need help. I need security. What is David's ultimate security? It's in the Davidic covenant getting fulfilled Yes, and he waits for the ultimate King to give him security, and that is the King who dwells what forever before the Lord. Do you see that? Uh, David doesn't dwell forever; he what dies. That would generally be a problem, so he can't probably be talking about himself here. Uh, and what what's the next phrase in verse seven? Loving, kindness, and truth, what? They watch over him. Loving, kindness, and truth watch over him. Jesus is full of... Grace Grace and truth. Yeah, of course they're watching over him. Who's watching over him? The ultimate king. Who is God? In Psalm 61, what you have here is David hoping... In a ultimate king. He's hoping <clears throat> for the rock. You know, raise me up to, a, or let me rest or guide me to the rock that is higher than I. The rock, I would argue, is a messianic reference. It's based upon a whole string of texts that deal with God as rock and, you know, all these different things. And it goes all the way to 1 Corinthians 10. But in Psalm 61, David is saying, I need to rest on Christ, the future Messiah, that's the one who's going to give me future stability. Does that make sense to everybody? That kind of shifts it a little bit, right? Because who are you resting on specifically then? Jesus, right? You just know the guy's name because he appears in redemptive history. And so some of the Psalms become inherently Christological for that very reason. Jesus is our stability forever. Um, remember that Psalms are meant to be worship. And so this isn't just a cathartic experience of you expressing trust to the Lord. This is, a, this is an expression of worship to who? Jesus. How did we get there? Through the Davidic covenant, which is what David has in mind. Go to a different Psalm. How about chapter 20 and 21. I, I, I haven't actually heard a psalm, this psalm, ever preached. And uh, here's kind of why. Someone just start reading Psalm 20. May the Lord use you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary
2: and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regardless to favor your burnt sacrifices. Keep going.
0: Okay, stop right there. Do you know what this is? This is is a prayer before David goes into battle. Now, okay. Maybe you could pray this for what? Like before you do something hard, yeah? Like may the Lord do this for you, and may the Lord do this. But it's going to sound kind of awkward, like may he remember your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, like... What is that? Uh, You know, and you know, we can trust in the Lord and these are all good things and they're all true. But maybe the best application of this is, go through this, what what are they doing? May God bless David as he does his job as what? The Davidic king, yes? As he conquers his foes, Remember his righteousness and do make him do the job. Fulfill all of this kind of stuff. Does that make sense to everybody? <clears throat> if the Davidic covenant, and if this is a prayer uh, for battle in light of the Davidic covenant, if it culminates in Christ, do you know the closest prayer to what you just pray there in the New Testament is? Three words in English. Anyone know? Three words in English, prayer in the New Testament, Jesus tells you to pray it. Yeah, what in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. That's exactly what you pray in a nutshell with Psalm 20. What are you praying? Jesus, come back, right? Bring in your kingdom. Oh, remember this? How to establish, how to establish uh, the Davidic covenant. May your kingdom come, bringing in a king who is the ultimate seed, who will accomplish all these different covenants that have all been rolled into the Davidic covenant and save the world. God, give Jesus everything and all the glory that he deserves. Yeah, can you apply Psalm 20 in your own personal life and kind of like, well, before I go out into the battlefield, so to speak, of life and, you know, I just need to trust the Lord. Yeah, of course. But don't miss, don't miss where this was originally going. Does that make sense? The people would pray this for David. They would pray for Solomon. They would pray for every single king following him. And ultimately, who, do, who will they pray this for? The Messiah. When he comes back to conquer and God fulfills every single one of his desires. Why? Because he's the king, and the and God is his father, and the Messiah is his son. Hence, every desire of the king's heart will be fulfilled. Go into the book of John and remember Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Whatever I ask from the Father, he gives to me. Where do you get that from? Psalm twenty, twenty one. Do you have a question? Yeah.
1: Uh, I love it because he's already pronouncing victory before they even go in. And I guess, I mean, Abraham Lincoln and General MacArthur must have been uh, reading this kind of stuff him because they, they declared the same. And yeah, it's powerful whenever you're about to go in somewhere and they say, hey, we're going to win. You know, they don't have a chance. We're going to crush them.
0: Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, for sure. I think the ultimate, though, in application of this is when Christ goes into battle because the battle is already decided most clearly and it's in the most epic moment of world history it's Jesus versus the planet <laughs> you know the world and the battle's already set you know that's why he's marching alone and if you wanted to extrapolate a little bit what are all the cheerleaders for lack of a better term behind him saying psalm 20 and 21 he has the victory Oh, I, I said, if you were extrapolating, in Revelation 19, there's just peop, there's people dressed in white behind him, with no weapons, which is kind of strange in a battle situation, you know. But Jesus has a weapon; it's his mouth, and he kills everybody. So, what are they doing? The argument would be that those people in Revelation 19 are kind of like the cheerleaders. That's where, I mean, they're not cheerleaders; they're just they're the praise choir for celebrating what Jesus is about to do. So what? Yeah, twenty twenty one. Yeah. So David's praying this because the second person. So no, no, no. It's not. It's not that David's praying. David wrote this as, "Hey guys, the Davidic covenant. These promises. Here's how they look before I go into battle. So you pray this for me. Does that make sense? You pray this for me. God's promised me victory." I'm supposed to be doing these kinds of things that are going to produce dominion over the world and therefore blessing to the world and after blessing to the world, restoration of the world. Okay, so pray this for me as I go into battle. These are the Davidic covenant promises in the battle. Does that make sense? In action. That's how how these are used. And do you ultimately see how you can honor Christ in your worship through the Psalms? It's not crazy. This is the way it works because these are based on promises that ultimately must be fulfilled by Christ. These are his privileges. So pray them for him, not just for you. Does that make sense to everybody? You're not David. So don't be so selfish. Uh, Thy kingdom come. This is an expansion on a whole series of motifs and ideas in the Old Testament. Okay? Psalm 72 provides us Uh, a a tremendous exposition of what it means to be the ultimate king. Psalm 72. Uh, We don't have time to go through it all. Okay? But know this, that Psalm 72, Psalm chapter 2, and Psalm 110 all discuss the same thing, which is, what does it mean to be the ultimate king? And they are expositions of the Davidic covenant today you are my son. Where did did God say, where did God get that idea in Psalm 2? From the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant says, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. Everyone remember that. Psalm 110 says, you will be a king forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Where did that come from? Well, if you've been remembering what we've been talking about with the context of 2 Samuel 7, they conquered Jerusalem. Melchizedek is there. David when he brings in the Ark, starts to act like, not as, but act like, a, uh, as a priest. And who's the closest embodiment of the two? Melchizedek. And so David takes one to no one. He writes that in. Psalm 72 is Solomon's own prayer. And here's something interesting. And you start to, and maybe, maybe we should take a little bit of time to read through this. But uh, notice... Okay. Some things. Um, start reading, say from verse seven, uh, five. No, start reading from verse five down, and I'll cut you off and have you read some other places. But start reading from verses five and following. Someone out loud.
2: May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the green grass, like showers that water the
0: earth. Okay, stop right there. May he be like rain. Why is that important, particularly in Israel? Rain only comes in a certain time. And how does Israel get its water, its fruitfulness, its fertility, agriculturally speaking? It gets it through the rain. So you need the rain to bless the land and the reign of this king is like what it's like rain that blesses the land that gives it fruitfulness does that make sense to everybody which is an allusion therefore to what part of the davidic covenant i will give you rest very good i'll give you rest it's a fulfillment or it's looking back and alluding back to the noaic covenant yeah that because uh, back then they would use plays and play on words like that
1: like Jesus would say rock and then Peter and then you would see the play on the words there with rain and
0: rain. Well, rain and rain in Hebrew is two different words. Okay. But but it's funny that you talk about this because um, the word for it's actually in Joel but the word for rain I, I'll give them rain is the same word for as teacher. I talked about this uh, in minor prophets class. And even Solomon says, give them rain and teach them righteousness through your teacher. Who, if you remember the, remember the, the law, the three G's, what are they? Yeah, yeah good. And, and what you have right after that is the king was supposed to write down the law and teach the people the law. He was supposed to write down the whole thing. He was supposed to be the teacher. Does that make sense to everybody? He was in charge of all the instruction, the educational system, you could say, of Israel. That was his job. And so Solomon says, when the people struggle, here's what Lord pleased, because we have a temple, rain on them, more, as well as teach them or give them a teacher, more. It sounds pretty much like the same word. And in Joel, God says, I will give you a teacher of righteousness and I will pour down rain upon you. And here, this image of rain and with the rain of Christ, with the rain of the ultimate king, even though, you know, rain and rain are different in Hebrew, the word rain sometimes is related to the word teacher in Hebrew. And so, there, yes, there is actually connection. Yeah. That would also further explain in the
1: New Testament, whenever uh, the one parable where it says Jesus will reign inside you, kind of uh, in Luke, I think it's like 12 through 13. Anyway, it says Jesus will reign inside you, but all the uh, people would say, no, you can't reign inside of somebody, so a lot of people misinterpret that text because it's more of an outward teaching you know,
0: versus... Right. Yeah, I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, that's true. But... Here, in Psalm 72, just go back a little bit. Noah covenant connection. And, someone read verse 15. So he may, so he may live, and may the gold of Jehovah be given to him, and let
2: them pray
0: for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. Okay. Let them bless him all day long. In... What's the illusion? Where do you have a king and blessing linked? Or the seed and blessing linked? Yes, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Once again, Psalm 72 says, when the ultimate king, who has, who has the judgment, when he reigns, <coughs> when he reigns, all the nations will bless him because all the nations in him are what? Blessed. He is the ultimate Davidic king. Do you start to see that... Um, does the Davidic covenant cover sin? Yeah, it does. And I could show you passages about that. You're very familiar with them, like Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Psalm 18, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, all these kinds of things. But, um, and they kind of hit, and hit on some things with salvation. But um, do you also start to see, this is much bigger than salvation. This is Jesus being king over the world. Does that make sense to everybody? This is Jesus reigning over all the nations. And all the nations in him are blessed. And they all come to bow to him. Uh, why do we preach the gospel? Why do, yes, you want people to be saved. Yes, absolutely. Do you care about the lost? Absolutely. But I care more about giving glory to Jesus. Because that's what he died to buy. He didn't just die to buy you. He died to buy a world for his own name so that they would worship him, so that all the nations in him would be blessed. It's much, much bigger. <clears throat> um, this also helps you to understand, for example, like, remember in Psalm 61, I said that David, how did David have sure assurance that he's going to be okay? Everyone remember that? It was through who? Because he was waiting for the ultimate king, Christ. Yes? So go to Psalm 16. And David has a similar situation here. And in verse, I think it's 10. Is it 10? Yeah, it should be 10. Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, you will not give your Holy One to see corruption. Everyone see that there? Here's what's fascinating about that. The same logic, I argue, would be used. Why can David be confident that he's going to survive? Because what? You will not allow my soul to see Sheol because you, or you will not abandon me to Sheol because what? You have a Holy One who is the Messiah who will not be allowed to see corruption. Does that make sense to everybody? It's not just that the guys are saying the same thing. If you read most commentators... They're going to say Psalm 1610 is both talking about David. David is my soul. David is also referred to by your Holy One. Does that make sense everybody? It just sounds like he's talking about himself both times. But if we understand that David switches from first person to third person, a lot of times when he's talking about the ultimate king, this might be more than you originally realized. Are you with me on this? On top of that, the Holy One in the singular is actually found in First Samuel chapter two. It's one of the it's one of the most interesting usages of the term. First Samuel two. You know Hannah's praying. Remember that. And here she prays that uh, you know the feet of. His Holy One He will keep. Verse 9. Everyone see that? 1 Samuel 2.9? It probably says in 1 Samuel 2.9, in your translation, the feet of His Holy Ones, plural, right? It's not. In the Hebrew text, it's singular. They went with, well, they just went with something made up, frankly. Okay, it wasn't made up. I mean, let's see. If I, it just says Holy One. Right, it has. There's some Hebrew manuscripts that have it, but... The Septuagint, for example, doesn't have it. The Septuagint agrees with the majority of Hebrew manuscripts that have it as His Holy One singular. And you're saying, where are you going with this? Here, I'll show you. Whole, hit the feet of His Holy One, He'll keep. That's positive or negative? Positive. This is not a trick question. How about this? but he's going to, you know, destroy, silence the one, the evil ones in darkness. They will go into darkness. Positive or negative? Negative. Negative, Okay. Continue reading, you know, and it won't, you know, but the might of the mighty man, the Lord's going to punch him down. He's going to shake the heavens. Are those positive or negative? Negative. Okay. How about this? And the Lord will judge the ends of the earth negative but he will give strength to his king positive or negative negative? positive do you start to see this what do you have positive negative positive what is this structure called chiasm and yes although this is very important for the book of first samuel notice the parallelism who is the the one the holy one the hasid he gives strength to his what King. He lifts the horn of his. What does it say? Anointed one, which is in Hebrew what? Messiah. The positive one? Holy one. The positive one here? The king, the Messiah. Who is the Holy one? Hello? This guy. What is David saying? In Psalm 16, I know that I'm going to survive this. I know that I'm not going to die ultimately, that there is a resurrection for me. Why? Because the Messiah will save me. Does that make sense? And so, go to Acts chapter 2 as well as chapter 3 and chapter 13. I mean, it's repeated quite, quite a bit. But someone just read verse uh, 27. Acts 2, 27.
2: For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy ones see corruption.
0: Sound, fam- sound familiar?
1: that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption.
0: Stop right there. So, see, here's the problem that every Christian nerd scholar has. If you take Psalm 16, it just a double reference to David. What? Peter says David was a prophet, and he knew what? That this was about the resurrection. And they're like, well, I can't see that. Well, of course you can't see that. Because you didn't read it like this. That was your problem. You didn't read it with the Davidic Covenant in mind. You just read it. Well, why not? I mean, it's just about David. So, it's Because everything's personally about you. So, of course, of course you're going to mess up. But if you have this in the background of your mind, the Davidic Covenant must be enforced. By the way, 2 Samuel 7. This is very fascinating. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 7, in your translation... I think this is what it says at the very end. Uh, Verse 16. Your house will be secure. It will be faithful. And your kingdom until eternity will stand before you. Or before me. Is that what it says? 2 Samuel 7.16. Is that what it says? Before me. It's wrong. It's before you. And who's the you in context? Who's the you in context? Who's God talking to here? In 2 Samuel 7, who is God talking to? David. David, you will see your house and your kingdom endure forever. Which means what? David has to live, right? You can't see it if you're dead and you just stay physically dead. Does this make sense to everybody? Are you with me? And so Peter says David knew. David knew he had to see his kingdom and David knew that the key to doing or doing this was that there would be the fruit, the seed, the offspring of his loins. By the way, that's a direct allusion back to 2 Samuel 7. There will be a seed from your loins. Remember that? And that was actually connected back to the Abrahamic covenant, which is connected back to Genesis 3.15. Everyone remember this? In the last discussion, Peter says David knew that. Well, of course he did. I mean, because all the OT connections should have clued you in that he knew that because God told him that. David knew that Christ would come and he would not suffer and be abandoned in Sheol because he had to see that kingdom. Uh, It's going to be very interesting because David, in the end, will live. But he'll live to see his ultimate descendant, who is actually his Lord, Psalm 110, sitting on the throne forever. Okay? Does this make sense? You with me? There are a lot of other things we could go through, like Psalm 22, Psalm 23. Uh, Do you remember the Psalms, like, let another man take his office? Remember that? Psalm 109, and it's applied against Judas, in Acts. That's how they get the idea to take, Matthias, you know, they've cast lots and they get Matthias uh, in as a replacement for Judas. Does everyone remember that story? And the question is, how did Peter know how to do that? The Davidic covenant is in the background of the Psalms. Remember, David has corporate solidarity now, not only with Israel, but the world, but specifically with Israel, If you are blessed, if they bless you, what will happen? I will bless them. But those who curse you, I will what? Curse. So David's saying, according to the Davidic covenant, which is also got rolled into it, the Abrahamic covenant, which has got also rolled into all these other covenants. If you harm the Davidic king, here are the curses that you will receive. Does that make sense? If you harm a Davidic king, here are the curses you will receive. Psalm 109 as well as Psalm 69. So what is Peter saying? Judas harmed too. The ultimate Davidic king. Therefore, what? He gets the ultimate punishment. Yeah?
1: Um, in Acts, uh, just going back to what you just said. Yeah. How does this constitute David as a prophet? I mean, I guess, like, that word prophet, not like a true prophet, but, like, in Psalms 22, like, kind of kind of sometimes as prophecies.
0: Yeah, it's not like he's a habitual prophet, if that's what you're trying to say, uh, or trying to ask. But Psalm 16 is a direct prophecy. So oh. How can they get
1: away with, I mean, they just call him a prophet, not a king? I mean, how can...
0: Oh, well, because he, he's acting in the role of a prophet at that moment. Maybe I'm not understanding your question.
1: No, I mean, why would he call him out as a prophet in Acts and not a king? Or uh, why why would he go with that title? Because I'm sure most people didn't see him as a prophet.
0: Yeah, but I think they actually did because a lot of his psalms are prophetic because what they do is they take the Davidic covenant and they project it to its logical conclusion under inspiration. And that's what David did a lot of times. Psalm 22 is a good case in point. What happens when you have the ultimate suffering? You'll have the ultimate fulfillment of all of these kind of elements. Does that make sense? Which then produces all of these different things in Psalm 22, like the nations coming to worship him, Israel living forever, all these different kinds of things. David was prophetic in that sense. He did predict the future based upon previous revelation, but a lot of prophet, prophets did that. So there's, see, and that you actually bring up a really good point we don't view David as a prophet. Right? That That's the main... We view him as a king. And we should. <laughs> that's the point of Second Samuel 7. But my point with the Davidic covenant is, if you link it with the Psalms, sometimes things become more what? Prophetic than originally it looks. Does that make sense? Some things, all of a sudden, it's not... It's not just about, hey, I'm down in the dumps, let me read a psalm. Oh, yeah, so encouraging, mm, good, and I can go on with my day. I mean, that's good. There's a, there's a point to that, too. But when you start to read the Davidic covenant in the background, instead of doing something like this, where you kind of like read the psalms, and because there is no trajectory, it just goes like this. Like right back to you takes two points to create a line. If you have the Davidic covenant in the background and then you read the psalms, then you start to see something pointing to the future. And a lot of the psalms can be, you know, certain psalms, I should say, are prophetic. But it's just because David is thinking about the Davidic covenant in a situation and he can project what's going to happen in the future under inspiration based upon that information. And it happens all the time in the Psalms, actually. But we just don't read them that way because we like this way because it makes us feel good. Does that make sense? And Peter's saying, he's a prophet. And yeah, your reaction is like everybody's reaction. No, he's not. He can't be. But Peter's like, "Uh, hello. Yes, he is. Kyle. Certain ones are, yeah. So, how do you interpret those songs? I would interpret it like this. David has already been postured by God a long time ago to be the ultimate Israelite. And so, he already has the Abrahamic covenant riding on his shoulders. The Davidic covenant encodes that officially, but it doesn't mean that some of those things weren't already in play, or God was shaping David for that role. Much rather we already know he was because he says so, right? Do you think I just raised you from the sheepfold and did all these things for you just because I wanted you to build me a, you know, a big house? No, I did this so that you would be a king. I shaped you. Remember how I talked about the setting of the Davidic covenant and how that shapes everything within the Davidic covenant? Kind of like the setting on a ring well, that's the exact same idea. God had already ina- been enacting a lot of the Davidic covenant promises well before it was officially enacted uh, or revealed. He had already been working it into the context, but primarily through the general Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. And is there a way to know which psalms which um, were written before the Davidic covenant? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes, no. It's very difficult. But <laughs> a lot of times people want to link him to when he was running away from Saul. Uh, The easiest, the most explicit ones would be the ones that he's like hiding in the cave from Saul. He's with Achish, king of Gath, things of this nature. That would help you. But for the most part, I think a lot of them are not when he's running from Saul. I think a lot of them are actually when he's running away from Absalom. And we'll talk about that because he feels like, he feels this and he's wondering about all that. And then when he comes out on the other side alive, he writes a final reflection, those are his last words, and we'll talk about that later. Good question, yes? Yeah, here, I'll show you one. Ready? Go to Acts. 13. Verse 34. Someone read it out loud. This is Paul. By the way, Acts 13, um, In, I mean, yes, it should be involved in Lucan in theology and things like this, but Acts 13 is basically Paul's, I would argue Acts 13 is a great summation of Paul's theology in one speech. It's kind of like Paul, he comes out and he says, hey, this is what I'm about, theologically speaking. That's Acts 13. So, okay. What's one big thing that Paul's about? Acts thirteen thirty four. What does it say? After the, fact that him from the dead, want to to corruption. Oh, stop right there. That's an allusion back to Psalm sixteen. So it's like, well duh. And I don't need to beat a dead horse, so continue. From the bread, I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. Oh. Huh. What kind of pro- what kind of sure blessings are those? I mean, of David. I mean, if it's not the what? Uh, the Davidic Covenant. You know, like, oh, as opposed to what other covenant, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> just has the Lord David in there. So I think maybe we could be talking about the Davidic Covenant, yeah. <clears throat> and to be fair, Romans 1, What does, what does Jesus or through Paul actually, to be very precise, want you to understand about Jesus? Verse three, or well, two and three. One chapter one, verses two and three. What does he say? Which he yeah. Stop right there. Who is descendant from David? What's the word for descendant? The word who is the seed of David, according to the flesh. Don't forget who this guy is. He's the key to everything. Why is that mentioned? Because that is, in a sense, in a nutshell, this is the one who bears the Davidic title. By the way, I said there were two analogies to describe the Davidic covenant, too. <clears throat> the first one I told you was the ring. Everyone remember that? The second one was the sword. The sword that was broken. Remember that? And I already mentioned this analogy before, but once you reforge the sword, and Aragorn, remember he goes into the mount, mountain and all those like, you know, ghost people appear to him and they're like, "Oh, this is this is the place that the dead have made. You can't get out. Bye 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 bye." And Aragorn says, you will answer to the king of Gondor and he pulled out the sword and they're like, oh, and then they all join his side. Remember this? The one who bears the sword. Oh, by the way, <clears throat> that's why in the movie, Aragorn flashes the sword to who? At the, right before they charge. Sauron. Everyone remember that? Like they're standing at the black gate and he holds the sword up in the air. It's, it's, a, it's a way of taunting Sauron. Like your doom has come, Right? I forged, I'm i the one who holds the sword and you're a dead person. Anyway, uh, actually there's a similar parallel to that with, uh, oh man, what's Samwise? Remember, that, remember him? I think it's, no, no, it's not Sam. Who is it? Oh man. He's riding with um, Eowyn and Pippin. who? Pippin, yeah, that's right. Remember that? And he stabs the, the crazy dark, uh, the ring wraith in the back, remember that? That sword's also special. You can't just stab any. You can't just use any sword to stab the guy. So actually, there's this whole prophecy thing in the background of it that you can read if you really are bored. And uh, and it, what it does is it just shows, hey, look, the right sword for the right task. That's kind of the principle. And here is the one who bears the Davidic covenant sword and Paul says don't forget him that's who he is he is the seed of david seed of david has evolves in a sense to be the title of the ultimate king he bears the davidic covenant don't forget who he is that's why also in second timothy chapter 2 <coughs> verse 8 or 9 8 remember Jesus Christ, having been raised from the dead from the seed of David. When you're discouraged, Tim, and you don't think you're going to make it, and you don't think it's going to turn out good, um, because life is so hard, history is so tough, what does Paul give as the rallying cry? Remember Jesus Christ. Remember that he's the seed of David. And he has redemptive history now on his shoulders and in his hands because he holds the Davidic covenant. And you can't take that from him. Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah, Davidic covenant is all over Paul. It's even in the pastorals, see? Um, And there's a lot more that could be said about this too, but we just don't have time. And I was planning a separate lecture for New Testament references, but that's one. Uh, no, no, no. It's okay. I, you know, and here I'll just get. Maybe I'll just compact all this really quick. Like in the Book of Revelation, Revelation four and five. Uh, well, and we kind of jumped the gun a little bit here because we skipped the prophets, but it's okay. So well, let's go to f- chapter five. And Thorsell and I were just talking about this the other day. Look at five five. Don't cry, John. Why? Revelation 5.5, 5, what does it say? Yeah. The seven seals, at bare minimum, no matter what they are, are the title deed to the world, in essence. Whoever opens them unleashes judgment, which therefore makes him the claimant to the entire world to own the world. And the, the way that, uh, well, one, this is obviously an allusion to the Davidic covenant, and it's actually an allusion to like Isaiah 11's use of the Davidic covenant, and all these different things. But you can understand, line of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, root of David, Isaiah 11, he opens the seven seals, but here's what's interesting. Behold, what does he see? What would you expect? What would, okay, if, if somebody told you, hey, look, there's the lion, you either expect to see a person or you expect to see a what? A lion. Yeah, that would be true. Verse six.
2: In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Okay,
0: that, now doesn't that throw you off a little bit? It's like, wait, I thought it was supposed to be a lion. Instead, you get a what? Lamb. But you should have expected that if you understood the Davidic covenant. Because what secures the fulfillment of all of this? According to Psalm 22, the suffering. So you should have expected to see the Lamb if you really understood the what? Davidic covenant. Because the Messiah's suffering is what buys him and what purchases every tribe. And it's not just me that says that. It's uh, God. Here. (laughs) (laughs) So, see. See, it's like an answer key. Isn't it great? Psalm 22 should have already told you that if you read it. But if you were, you know, if you didn't, if you just read it like, ooh, David suffers, I suffer. And somehow the Gentiles will all worship me. I don't know how that fits (laughs) in the picture. But okay, you know, I'm going to feel really good about myself. (laughs) If you missed that because you were doing that instead of this, well, then God says, hello, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, all these other passages, Zechariah 12.10 and 12 through 14. Uh, Davidic covenant means when he suffers, that's a way for him to buy, to become the king and get a kingdom and prove that he's the seed so that he can fulfill all of redemptive history, every single covenant, new Noahic covenant, all the way back to Genesis three fifteen, and claimed the world. That happens in Revelation four and five. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see that? It's like a big domino effect. And do you see how powerful the cross is now? It's not just like, you know, you save my save for my sins and we get teary-eyed and and for good reason. It's much bigger. And when Jesus went to that cross, he did not just go to save you from your sins he went as a king nobly to that place to die, to become what God had always promised him to become, the hero, the hero. Let me just show you one more, Uh, one more example of this, and uh, I'll just use the book of Ezekiel, for example. Okay, Ezekiel 34, and you just kind of survey through... The, oh, oh, no, because you guys are... Half of you aren't even in Minor Prophets, so you won't even get this. Okay. Um, well, let's just do it anyway. I probably have confused you enough. So. so for those of you in Minor Prophets, you'll understand this. For those of you who are not, ask somebody in the Minor Prophets. That'll work. Ezekiel 34. God promises to raise up a shepherd. Everyone remember that? I've already mentioned this before. That means... That means the Davidic covenant is now what? In full force. Right? And anyone know what happens in 35? Just look at the, just look at the subtitles in your Bible. What does it say in chapter 35? Judgment, Judgment against... Mount Seir. Mount Seir is in what nation? Edom. Minor prophet people? Do you see the connection? I will, uh, okay, Here. here's how we can do it. Someone turned it, see now it pays to pay attention to last class, because we cover like Amos 9 for a bazillion hours. Someone turned to Amos 9. 11 through 15-ish. Someone read Amos 9.11 and following.
2: In that day, I will raise up the booth of David. Okay,
0: stop right there. I will raise up the booth of David. Shepherd, yes? And then what will happen? Continue.
2: And repair its breaches and yeah. raise up its ruins and it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Uh,
0: Do you see that? They may possess the remnant of Edom. 34, 35. It's like, where did Ezekiel get this from? I don't know. It's like... Is it random order? No, 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 no. Okay, then next what? What's after the remnant of Edom? Blessing in Israel. Blessing on Israel. Oh, wait, 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 wait. What does it say? Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Blessing on Israel. New covenant is in 36. But what does it say in Amos? All the nations who are called by my All the nations who are called by my name. All the when you call on the name of the Lord, that's an act of what we talked about in Minor Prophets. Salvation, yes? 36, New Covenant. Uh, what is that? About? The New Covenant. Oh, where, where you got that from? Okay, continue. Continue. Continue reading, Mr.
2: When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treacher of grapes, him who sow the seed... The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never
0: again be uprooted. Okay, they shall. I will plant them on their land, they shall never be uprooted. 37 through 39, you have the famous prophecy about the dry bones as well as what? Gog and Magog. Everyone remember that? And what's the point of Gog and Magog? All these bunch of people, they attack Israel, and this time, Israel doesn't what? Fall. Right? Israel doesn't fall. Because this time, God defends them. Well, what happens? In Amos 9, 11 through 15, I will never what? They will never be moved again. I will plant them there. They will never be moved again. Well... Do you see a parallel here in the macro structure of Ezekiel? What happens in Amos 9:11 When you raise up the booth of David, all these things start to pl- come into place. Edom will be conquered. There's a lot of things there that you need to understand. People will be saved. New covenant. And Israel will be totally stable. Right? We see that in Amos, and it's expanded and exploded in Ezekiel. Why? Because it all centers around the domino effect of what takes place when the Davidic covenant is fulfilled. It's not just your personal salvation. Is that one thing here? Oh yeah, that's one thing. But it's huge. It's much, much bigger than that. It impacts the world and Ezekiel is expanding on what Amos has already said. Does that make sense to everybody? In the order that he said it because Amos sets up a scheme of causation. Uh, by the way, Remember this? I will plant them there. Remember that? Did you hear that in Amos? Read it again, Roger.
2: I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I gave
0: them. 2 Samuel 7.10. I will plant them in their land. Direct quote of the Davidic covenant. Showing what? It's all cause and effect. Even Ezekiel's macro structure does that. And hence, in 40 through 48, what do you have? The temple. Why? Because that's how you fulfill the Davidic covenant. Because the shepherd will build what? A temple. Why? Because that's what he's supposed to do according to the Davidic covenant. Does this start to make sense? See, Ezekiel's not that complicated of a book once you understand the Davidic covenant. If you try to do this thing with Ezekiel, you're going to... This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be... You're gonna have like a you're gonna be in total chaos and you don't know what to do, and you'll fall over dead, you know, or something, or drunk, you know, just from total confusion. But if you understand the Davidic covenant, then you understand, oh, once you got the shepherd in place, boom, 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 it all makes sense. It's just all downhill from there. And so Ezekiel says, God's coming back to save you. How did I know? He's going to give you the shepherd. And then all Israel would say, well then, it's over. right? We got him. right? The key to our survival is here. Does this start to make sense to everybody? Do you see how big the Davidic covenant is? It forms a structure of books, gives you understanding about the Psalms, shows you how they're actually prophetic and not just introspective. It does a lot. Changes the way you read the Bible. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm the guy. And everyone's like, no. You know, we don't like that. It's too bad. And actually, um, <clears throat> if we really went through the order that I was originally intending to go through, which is like going through Hosea and all these different things, you would start to say, whoa, that's crazy. Because what plays out is exactly what kind of Jesus said even into the modern day. There, but don't have time. You're done.